Well, with that said, we are jumping back into Romans. We're starting chapter seven. And uh, today we're gonna be just looking at the first six verses. And Paul is, is continuing to move, you know, the first several chapters of Romans, Paul is establishing what the gospel is and why the gospel is necessary and why it is that we would need God to enter into human sinfulness, to die on our behalf, uh, so that he could impute to us something that we were not capable of creating for ourselves, which is righteousness, that there is none who are good, no, not one, that all of the world lies under the condemnation of sin and that sin is a reality that actually has rendered us as human beings impotent in our ability to reach God in our own effort. And Paul is going to great lengths to, to establish that gospel-centeredness because his belief is that the justification of the believer um, and the believer's transformation, uh, that is their sanctification, flows out of a proper anchoring in this gospel. Uh, this is why Paul said to the Galatians, he said, if, if anyone preaches a different gospel than what you have heard from me, he said, even an angel <laughs> appears and gives a different gospel, let them be accursed. That's how central this, uh, this conviction was in his writing. And I believe that that is a, a spirit-led and filled conviction uh, for much of our New Testament uh, came to us through the pen of Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the apostle to the Gentiles. What Paul becomes is a fulfillment of what God's heart was all along, that Israel wasn't chosen at the expense of everyone. Israel was chosen to be a conduit of God's love for mankind. And through Jesus, the fulfillment of of the promises to Israel were made, made true and that Christ now has, has started this incredible thing, this new humanity in which he is the firstborn. And Paul begins to be the fulfillment of God's word going to all people. And so it's appropriate that Romans would come to us through the apostle essentially to the world. Uh, and here I wanna begin with this because what Paul now is going to begin to dig into and there are many interpretations on some of the nuances of this text, but I think that the main ideas are the main ideas. Uh, whether you view Paul's language around law as simply Torah, or you view Paul's language around law as law wherever it is found, um, which is what I would argue he is dealing with here, is that law in any form cannot save us. And believe me, we live in a culture right now that thinks that the answers to human existence are things that can be legislated, that, that we can correct the wrongs of the sinful heart by pretending sin doesn't exist and acting instead like it's all institutional problems that if we could just correct those then the basic goodness of the human heart would come into focus. We should know better as Christians that the central issue of the human experience is not even the devil. For as it's been wisely stated, if the devil died today, you would continue to sin tomorrow. Our sinful nature has broken us down to reveal to us that there is no ladder that we can climb to reach God in our own effort. And this is why Luther, in a book that I'm sure you all are just dying to get your hands on, the Heidelberg Disputation, uh, 
uh, from 1518 is actually a very profound. Uh, and I would say it is, if you want to get a primer on Luther, um, uh, by Gerhard Ford's book, um, how, to be, uh, how to Be a Theologian of the Cross, one of the most important books I've read in the last five years. Um, it, he's a Lutheran theologian. I don't agree with everything he says, but he is profound. And his meditations on the cross and the importance is he believes the same thing that Luther believed, which is the most essential need among Christian thinkers is the, the ability to distinguish between law and gospel. And that's the question we're going to ask today is what is the place of the law in Christian discipleship now that Christ has come and inaugurated a new era? Uh, look at this quote from Luther. The law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. Weird, it kind of feels like Keller sort of took credit for the first half of that statement. He always says, this is the gospel. Uh, doing what, <laughs> trying to do what only God can do for you. The law says live like this and God will accept you. The gospel says God has accepted you at an incredible cost to his son, therefore live like this. That's Keller's little twist on it. But I, I actually prefer Luther's statement because I think it speaks something even more extreme. And it, the extreme is, is that Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension changed the nature of things, actually put into motion an entirely new reality that Jesus did not improve upon the law, he fulfilled the law, and that the fulfillment of the law ushered in an entirely new era, and the law is not our master any longer. Uh, it is actually the servant of Christ, for he himself is the lawgiver and its fulfillment, and our salvation is not based upon our ability to achieve something that we cannot achieve. It is based upon something that has been achieved for us on our behalf and has nothing to do with us. But here's the problem. Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, you are not under law, but under grace. And the antithesis between law and grace is super important for us to understand. Because if I was to actually begin to give you a primer, let's just take law in its basic in its basic way. I believe when Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you, he's not saying that they were saved. What he's saying is that, that there is a law. The law of God is written into the fabric of creation itself. And sin has infected every aspect of creation. So it's hindered our inability to actually live according to that perfect, that perfect reality, which is why there is a psychological um, crisis that we experience as human beings and we have figured out a multitude of ways to silence the nagging voice of conscience, which is this fundamental belief that I can't actually seem to be everything that I want to be or I always feel like I'm made for more than what I'm currently experiencing. The problem is, is that we're all at different places in that and so we, we continue to believe the lie um, that real contentment, real fulfillment, the ability to see one's dreams through to their completion. Uh, and, and there's a million people out there that have written books to give you, you know, their path to becoming your most truest self. But the fact is, is that 
we look at the people that achieve everything they set out to achieve and there still seems to be at the core a, a fundamental emptiness that's weird because there is this guy that lived a really long time ago that wrote a book called Ecclesiastes that just happened to say something pretty similar uh, which is that he explored every avenue of the human experience. He explored the libertine spirit I gave myself to women and to, and to, to food and hedonism and, and all of these things. And it was, it was vanity. It was vanity. It was grasping at the wind. He goes, then I gave myself to law and all of these things. Vanity, nothing. Writing of books, endless books. But there's nothing new under the sun. All is vanity, he says. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes, what the preacher gives us is a picture of life under the sun. What I mean, a, a life from the perspective of fallen humanity and the emptiness that the pursuits that we think will bring satisfaction to our lives brings. And so he writes, God has written eternity upon the heart of man, which is why we are eternally restless until we find rest in him. And so we utilize law to make ourselves feel better. We set up, and I would say law is, comes in any form, it is anything that you utilize to justify your existence. In other words, it's the, it's the, it's the things that you do to make yourself feel like you are not a bigger failure than you actually are. Is that encouraging? <laughs> so, so I, I think about it in these terms when, you know, he says, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Well, everything in life is driven by realities, immovable forces. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you, I believe that there is this picture that the law is written upon the human heart that it gives us an internal sense. It says, and those that do not have the law still function according to a law that is within them, that they may not fully understand what it is, but there is these internal senses that go beyond what can be explained that makes us believe some basic universal truths, and yet we continually violate those things. And in fact, the more we understand the law, if you're like me, because I'm a true Gen Xer, and a true contrarian is that the moment you tell me I can't do something is the moment I must do that thing. I'm always like that. It's totally true. I get like mad. I'll see, I, this is, I'm just gonna confess. I see a sign that says 25 miles an hour on a road that seems like it should be faster. I just like, I, I cannot abide with that. We're, I'm going 45. I, when I see a bicycle lane, and I'm on a motorcycle, I think it's unfair. I ride in that bicycle lane on my motorcycle because I don't like cyclists. See, I live by, I live by a contrarian that the law reveals and what it does is it reveals that I am a lawbreaker. What the law does is it cannot save. It can't, it can't actually, it can't achieve what it demands. All it can do is be a plumb line from heaven that reveals that we're crooked. And so what, what, what occurs in our current cultural place that we find ourselves today is that that internal voice that says something isn't right and I am not a satisfied human being because we cannot accept 
the condemnation of scripture that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I don't care if you're an atheist or a Bible-believing Christian, the internal existential crisis that we experience as human beings is a universal experience. And what we have done in our culture, because we have wanted to eradicate any sort of moral responsibility, is that we have turned the world into a universe of scapegoats. I can't keep this law, therefore it's not my, the reason I'm this way is because of my dad. The reason I'm this way is because I have a mean spouse. The reason I'm not able to do the things I should do is because my kids are away, whatever it might be. The reason that I'm this way is because I live in a crazy liberal city or the reason I'm this way is because I live in an over the top, you know, archaic, conservative world, whatever it might be, but we have our scapegoats. And Rene Girard was right when he said that the universe is full of scapegoats. It goes all the way back to that primordial word in the garden that said, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Sin is all about the scapegoat mechanism. And what Rene Girard believed is, what I believe is that unless we actually find the only scapegoat that can save, which is Jesus, we will inevitably bring about an apocalyptic reality, which is sin will destroy us. There will be a justice that we achieve, but it will bring only bitterness. Because for us as Christians, the only justice that we can truly talk about is what it means to be justified in a Christ who alone is just. And so I think that this is the picture that we need to understand as we dig into this, because if you were to ask yourself today, what does it mean to be free from the law? It means that you are no longer pointing your finger um, at people for your brokenness, but you are allowing Christ by his Holy Spirit to unveil the fact that you are fundamentally lost and that you are incapable of saving yourself. And there is just something in us, even as born again believers, that still believes there must be something I can do to save, to save myself. There must be something I can do to at least help Jesus in saving me. We want to front load the gospel. We want to consistently make our understanding of the gospel contingent upon performance, but you should be as grateful as I am that it is not. And what that means is that if we recognize that it's not contingent upon our performance, why are we so hell-bent on making it contingent for others? Because I think one of the great condemnations that I see in modern Christianity in the West is that we are the masters of refusing grace to others while abusing grace in ourselves. And so we need to understand that there are three attitudes toward law and there is only one that is right. The first is the legalist. It's the person who lives by certain moral codes to make themselves feel better about their relationship or lack thereof with this unseen God and the world around them. I know th this comes in all sorts of forms, but it's the perfectionist spirit. It's the, I am going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm gonna get stuff done. I'm gonna make things happen. I'm gonna show the world what a real work ethic is. I'm going to prove my savability. 
I'm going to prove to God that I actually am worth saving. It's really hard for us to accept that there is literally nothing in us that impresses him. I'm like, Lord, you made me, and that's pretty impressive. And he's like, yeah, no, no. (laughs) Like, let's just scratch that and just know that the only thing impressive in you is in those strange moments where I'm actually working through you in spite of you. That's the only thing that's impressive. But we don't like to believe that. We're like, but people tell me I'm gifted all the time. Or, and, and the th- same goes on the other side. It's the, the person with, that lives with self-hatred that never believes anything good in them is that they, they believe that God can't love them because they see how fundamentally broken they are, but they're still doing the exact same thing. They're living by law, not by grace, because they believe that their brokenness, their pitifulness means that God must love them less. But I just want you to know that most of us, if we're normal, honest human beings, are constantly flip-flopping between confidence and pitiful (laughs) because that's what our culture creates. It creates this strive for personal greatness at the expense of everyone else around you. Uh, And then we only find ourselves deeply disappointed and heartbroken by the cruelty of the world And there we find ourselves in that scapegoat mechanism, that loop, because we can't keep the law that we so desperately want to be able to keep so that we can prove that we're worth saving. The legalist is in bondage to law. They feel deeply convicted by those little slip-ups where they're, and they feel like God can't, it's like the person that all of a sudden they can't even handle going to church because they feel so much guilt and shame because they looked at porn last week and they feel like God can't forgive me for that. So instead of actually finding freedom from the very thing that's creating the bondage, they actually have a new level of bondage, which is now guilt and shame that has nothing to do with the gospel. And instead of being compelled to, to actually have victory because they are forgiven and because they are new creation and they're living in opposition to that reality of new creation, they actually start to believe a lie, which they mean, which they, I'm not actually new creation. And because I struggle with this, Jesus must not love me. And that's exactly where Satan wants the legalist. Because you're setting yourself up for continual and perpetual heartbreak. But the libertine is the other side. The libertine is the person that's like, I'm saved by grace. I recognize I'm a mess. I just don't think it actually matters that much. And I'm just going to live how I want. That's why when I was first interviewing Tim Mackey for the Bible Project, that, I mean, when he, when he actually, before he started the Bible Project, when he was a pastor here at Door of Hope, I remember I went out to dinner with him and Jessica, and Jessica said to me, you're the first Christian hedonist I've ever actually met. And I still to this day am not convinced that that's a compliment. Um, but I sort of live in that world of contrarian, tell me not to do something, I want to do it. I live with a reckless faith in Jesus' goodness and his grace, but the danger of that is that when you become cavalier around the gospel, that we forget that yes, God is, chooses to love sinners in their sin, but we can't believe the lie that the enemy would like us to believe, which is he is content to leave us there. But here's the fundamental problem with our understanding of sanctification is that we often have these false ideas that are presented in the church, which is sanctification is like you get saved, you're down here, and then it's a slow trajectory in a straight line toward glory. 
when in actuality, if our lives were to be drawn out on a map, it would look like a big stinking squiggly all over the place. There would be no right angles. It'd be like a Dr. Seuss drawing. Oh, I forgot, he's been canceled. Um, but uh, that's, this is the reality. It's like the, you know, this, this, this crazy chart, it would look like an insane labyrinth. Like mine would be like dead end, dead end lines and swirls. And it looks like he went underground here and it looks like he flew for a little bit here. That's what, that's what my sanctification looks like. And that it is moving us toward increasing degrees of intimacy, but not generally in the way that we want. I think this is one of the reasons I love Mary Carr, um, who has a poet, um, one of my favorite writers. She said, after years of being a Christian, she realized one day she only wants to kill some people on the New York subway in the morning, whereas she used to want to kill all of them. That's honest Christianity. That's real. Because if you've been on the New York subway, you know exactly what she's talking about. My wife had a panic attack on the New York subway, and it was when I realized that my desire to live in New York would now officially never be accomplished. <laughs> so, so this is the reality. The, le the legalist and the libertine are these two extremes, and most of the time, we're actually moving back and forth between them. At the last service, I asked, how many of you would consider yourselves legalistic? It was actually the majority of the hands raised their hands that their tendency is toward legalism. I said, how many toward the libertine? And I saw, I noticed that my wife raised her hand for both. Um, and I, I was like, it's me too. I, I'm often both at the same time. I can't keep the standards that I want to keep. So I switch into the, oh, whatever, like Jesus has got this covered. That's not how we're supposed to live because the third reality is what we want. And that is not the legalist or the, liber or the libertine. We want to be liberated. And that's what the gospel brings. And I'm not talking about liberation theology. I'm talking about the liberation that comes from being in Christ and Christ being in us. We have been liberated. We have a freedom not to do what we want, but the freedom to begin to do what is right under the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this text, here's what we're going to see. First of all, that we have been freed from the law by death. Look what it says in verses one through three. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, and I don't think he's just talking to Jewish believers because there was Roman law, there was Jewish law. Uh, law is a reality to human existence, and I think that that could be applied um, in, in relatively generic terms. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he or she lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, let me just first of all state out of the gate because I have seen some really, really bad exegesis of scripture where the passage is talking about the relationship of law and gospel. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's a sermon on marriage and this has turned into some sort of prescriptive conversation around marriage. This point is not to give instructions about marriage and remarriage, nor is he constructing an allegory in which every detail is intended to be matched to some sort of spiritual reality. He is simply showing that death sets one free from law. <laughs> If you're dead, you're not held to that law. Now, what's fascinating is 
It's not the law that dies in Paul's realm of thinking. It is the person that is married to it, that is bound to it, that is under its authority. And I think that's really important to think of in terms of even, and of even the, the illustration of marriage. And I wanna just be clear, it's not his intention to discuss whether there may be other contingencies that also break the marriage bond. And he is not denying that these may exist. So if we were to read that, and this is where one of those passages where people have come to the conclusion that the only time remarriage is ever acceptable, no matter what, is, is with the spouse dies because of this passage. Now, the problem with that is that, I mean, that just leaves you no options except poisoning. <laughs> I'm just joking, that was a horrible joke. It's a really bad joke. Okay, that's why we're not talking about marriage today. <laughs> Darcy's like, what can I do then? What's, what, is this, what is this cyanide? Um, it's horrible. People really have been poisoned by their spouses. Nothing to joke about. I don't want to get canceled. Um, freed by death. The law from which we are freed from is not just the law of Moses, but is law in any form. Paul's fellow Christians are his brothers and sisters, and, it, and, and what he is getting at here is it's to regard God's law as the dominant spiritual category in one's life. God is viewed primarily as the lawgiver, and the law is the whip in his hand by which he keeps his children in order. And that's often the view. Is it this faulty idea of God that every time you fail, the legalist struggles with this belief that if I fail, and a lot of times these are, these are grids that are applied based upon our upbringings, how we were raised by our parents. Um, if you're like me, even the concept of fatherhood is difficult because I didn't have a father. Or you had parents that were too lax where it was all grace and there were no parameters on life and you were, and you were just like the crazy kid and that was just really loved or you came under super strict parents who enforced the law um, to the letter in your life. Uh, maybe with the belt. <laughs> and these are the realities that when our experience, it's so easy for us to apply our understanding um, of God. We, we look at it through the grid of our own earthly experience, our relationships with our own parents, um, our relationships with others, what we observe in human nature. And it is true that the things that God reveals about himself is directly correspondent to his relationship with human beings, but we need to be very careful when we are applying how this works. Because if you believe that you somehow contribute to your salvation, it is going to be very easy for you to consistently feel like you are failing God and that he is disappointed. And I promise you, that will compel you to do nothing. It'll compel you for a little while. But guilt and shame is not a satisfactory motivation for existence. That's why I reject a lot of the cultural conversations right now that seem to be built, built upon perpetuating guilt and shame rather than living in the light of grace, which is that on your worst day, Jesus loves you whether you're the victim or the victimizer because he died for both. And when we remember that, it keeps us in a safer place. The reality is, is that if God saved us from Sin, as Luther said, the question he poses, why didn't he save us from sinning? 
And what Paul's going to address in the rest of Romans 7 is that there is a civil war within us. There is a reality that we are new creation. And this is what Paul means by this passage is that the only way that we find freedom, the only way that we find freedom from the enslavement to the law of sin is by a death. And that death is the good death. It's dying to your right to define for yourself what is right and wrong. It is allowing yourself to come under the authority of a new ruler. And the fact is, is that you were married to law before, is the way that he's defining it. And there was nothing wrong with the spouse if we were to apply law to and uh, personality. In fact, it's like being married to a spouse that's perfect, but that spouse can't help you achieve the same standard. And in fact, that spouse's presence only reminds you of how fundamentally screwed up you are every day without giving you any relief. That's what it's like to be married to law. But Jesus, he doesn't say the law, we're never told the law is bad. In fact, Paul says, if I hadn't known what the law was, I wouldn't have known what sin was. But the law actually produced in me even a desire to sin. It, it makes me aware of what sin is. And this is why the call of the gospel is that we die to our own effort, our attempts to keep the law, which is why Paul said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? And what he's calling us to move back toward is a dependence upon the one who didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled it. That it is by his spirit within us that we have the perfecter of the law. Christ, we are told in Romans, is the end of the law. Not its destruction, its fulfillment. And it is in him which it happens through death. This is why we do baptisms. And if you haven't been baptized, it's something that Jesus commanded of us. It's not necessary for salvation, but I believe it is one of the first acts. And I believe that those commands come with blessing. And the blessing is that public identification with Christ's death and resurrection. When you are submerged under the water, it is a picture of your death that you are freed from what once was a tyrant over your life, from the guilt and shame that comes with sin at the fact that we are continual, perpetual lawbreakers. That death is a reminder. That baptism is a reminder. I have died with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because then you are brought up out of the water, which is a representation of the very scripture, the reality it's not, it's a supernatural reality that if anyone be in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. If anyone be in Christ, they are new creation. But new creation is hard to keep at the forefront of the mind when we still live in fallen bodies. And this is what can, creates within us that natural civil war, that spiritual civil war where the old man, the old woman, and the spirit are consistently in conflict. And the question is, is who will have victory in our lives each day? And it is a daily question, and it is a daily willingness to die again 
and again and again to the lie of what God never intended for us so that his spirit can have control of us, working in us and through us. And it's never perfect, and this is why I always argue that the best way that we can manifest the spirit of God the most fully is not independently by ourselves. It's actually collectively as a community of believers who all recognize we're all glitchy, (laughs) we're all broken, but we're a family who has been covered by the love of a father who sent his only son. His grace is so good because it comes at us because it's his nature to love, not that we're lovable. And when we believe that corporately as a group, there is something supernatural that happens, I believe, in a church community. Why I believe it's so important, if you're watching online, that we gather in person is because I believe when God's people come together and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we are gathered around the person of Jesus and lifting him up, we bring heaven and earth to a, there's a it creates what I like to call a thin space where there's a a supernatural sense of God's presence. I can't put my finger on it, but there's just this sense that God is moving. I find that that is far more of a dominant feeling in a community of believers than it is when I'm alone by myself, seeking my own sanctification in the privacy of my study. I'm kind of with Luther. I don't necessarily trust solitude. I think it's the devil's playground. At least for my personality, I am much better intimately walking with Jesus as I go. (laughs) That's how I'm hardwired. Some of you, solitude is a wonderful thing, but I always say, don't practice solitude until first you learn how to master confession. (laughs) Because it may be true, you're called to be slow to speak, but you're also called to be slow, quick to confess, uh, quick to witness, and quick to say, Jesus, I need you, help me. Uh, So these things are realities in which we need to keep before us We have been freed from law. We have a new master. We're not under sin any longer. We are under grace, which means I have not only forgiven you, but I have absolved you. I literally see you, says the Father, as one who is sinless because I see you cloaked in my son. And this is why it's so important that we abide in Christ because that is the only safe place for the believer. And because if there is one way, which is Jesus, that means there's a thousand ways that we can get off track. The good news of the gospel is that he hasn't just freed us by death, but he has bound us by grace. In verse four, it says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. So notice that in spite of our brokenness, in spite of the glitchiness, in spite of the fact that everything we do is mixture, the more we yield to the lordship of Jesus, we're not going to see ourselves as less sinful. I just want you to know that. Jesus himself said to his disciples, there are many more things I have to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. I just want you to know if Jesus was to shine a light into your soul and show you every weird, funky, out-of-step thing that's going on in your brain and your heart and your intentions and all the things that you thought were maybe even good and godly that are still wrapped up in wrong motivations. And when we actually, if we were to able to actually see how deep our depravity is, we would probably be unhinged. It would probably kill us. I think that that's the picture of Isaiah when he comes 
the prophet of God comes before God and what does he do? He is unhinged, he falls on his face and says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips who live amongst the people of unclean lips. And it isn't until the angel brings a burning coal to his lips and purifies, his, purifies him that he begin, becomes the man jumping up and down saying, send me. But it took a divine intervention to get him off of his face and to get into the movement that is necessary to live out the Christian life. And the powerful thing is, is that God does work in us and through us in spite of our brokenness. In fact, I would agree with Oswald Chambers that one cannot truly even know the fullness of what sin is until you are born again. And the closer you get to Jesus, you don't see yourself as less of a sinner. I would argue you see yourself as more of a sinner. I am distrustful of any Christian that thinks that they have arrived. <laughs> I'm also distrustful of any Christian that says that they are trying to live the Christian life because it's not something we try to do, it's something we die to do. It's something that we surrender to do. It's a, it's a, a posture of receptivity. It is saying yes again and again to God's yes of love to us in Christ. And as we go in faith, we then learn what it means to have a faith that works. It is a faith, it is, it is an effort that flows out of the rest that we have perpetually in Jesus because we are energized by his spirit because we know even when we fall flat on our face, we don't have to live in guilt and shame. You know what, it, what when the gospel got root in my heart really got root. That was when I had the boldness to start a church because it didn't matter anymore if I failed as long as I was following Jesus. Because I began to fundamentally believe in the core of my being, what can man do to me? I have been, if Jesus can save someone as wretched as I am, I believe he can utilize me if I am truly willing to be utilized. And all I can do is say, Lord, I am yours. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That was actually Louis Palau's favorite verse. I have been crucified with Christ. And he told me again and again, it's all wrapped up in the cross, Josh. Just like that. It's all wrapped up in the cross. Christ's life in you now. That is the power. Bound by grace means that we are saying, Lord, in spite of this brokenness, in spite of these realities, and the thing is, is that as we come, we can't address sin until Christ illuminates it anyway. And as it's addressed, we just present it to him. The cross is like, is Stanley Vokes' um, argument that the cross is essentially, he's, he's English, and he called the dump, they call it the tip in South Africa and the UK, the garbage dump is the tip. And the, his opening chapter to his book, The Door of Hope, um, is, is driven by this idea that the cross is not something you look through, it's something you continually look to, and it's a place where you leave your garbage. And not many people go to the dump to collect garbage. They go there to leave it, but he goes, but I have seen plenty of people that have gone to the dump that have a difficult time giving up their garbage. And I think that that's a really interesting <laughs> reality. The cross is a place where we leave our sin, where we find continual, perpetual, a forgiveness that's already ours, but it becomes now experienced in our lives, which gives us the power to move forward. We are constantly under the pressure to make ourselves good, but Jesus himself said, there is none who is good but God. 
which he was saying to the young rich ruler when he said that, you're not good and I'm God. And it takes God in the heart of the man, the woman, for us to do any good. And that's the, that is the reality, which means that we are motivated by the Spirit. Finally, in verse 5 and 6, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. And he's going to dig into this much deeper later in the chapter. To bear fruit for death. I don't know about you, but I'm like the fruit tree that has like some deadly <laughs> It's like I have like good fruit and then deadly fruit all growing on the same tree. Like, yeah, don't eat that one. That one's bad. That's a bad apple. Um, but I think that this is so interesting, like how we can, we can become tools even of the enemy uh, when we forget to surrender to the king. And I think that here he says, he says, bear fruit to death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way. Notice that. We serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I think nothing is sadder than when you see Christians with a Bible that is nothing more than a dead book in their hands because they are not allowing the spirit's dominance in their lives. They think that being orthodox is what defines them as Christians. But listen, Satan is more orthodox than any of us. It doesn't mean he's saved. Being dead right is still being dead. And the good death always leads to resurrection life. And the only way in which we can truly understand the heart of God when we open up the written word is to have the living word, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of Christ himself dwelling within us richly as we yield to the spirit. Remember what I said about being spirit filled? Being spirit filled is not you getting more of the spirit. It's about the spirit having more control of you. And that spirit-filled life should lead to a fruitfulness, but that fruitful, once again, is, is mixture. And the fruit of the spirit, we're told. What is the litmus test? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Think about how necessary all of those definitions of what the fruit are speak to relationship. They really can't be exercised apart from relationship with others. And when we think about that, that fruit, how do I know that I am being more spirit-filled? A lot of it is played out in how I treat others. Am I living in judgment? Am I scapegoating? Am I hardest on others and easiest on myself? Or am I seeing people through the lens of Jesus? Am I seeing the homeless encampments as a people that Jesus loves? and needs grace or am I having those moments where I'm just mad that it makes our city ugly and almost the cleanliness of the city becomes more important to me than the people that are living in those places that are so representative of how broken our world is right now. I think Jesus would be probably wandering around in those camps telling them the good news. I think he would be like Peter, silver and gold I do not have but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Come be with me. And I think that this is the spirit when we are doing, living in the new way of the spirit, we aren't going with the flow of the culture in the world. Only dead fish go downstream. I think that the picture that we need is to be a people that are consistently, as, as what Jacques Ellul said, we need to learn to live in the world and at the same time elude it and its systems. 
It's like, I feel like being a Christian in the world is like playing Frogger. Do you guys remember that game? It really is. And that's a great game. And that game, once again, shows that the Christian path is not just this narrow one. It's, you know, you jump forward, oh, semi, jump back, quick side hops, alligator, don't jump on its mouth, jump on its back, eluding the systems, but still getting to the goal. And, you, and luckily, you know, you get points, you get extra lives. And I kind of feel like that actually works as an now. If I had written this, this book, Romans, I would have put Frogger in there. Uh, to, I think it's a better illustration than the marriage one. I'm just going to say it. Uh, <laughs> way less controversial. <laughs> but here is the picture. We need the spirit of God within us. Because we're more like the frog and Frogger rather than the one playing it. We need the master player to be guiding us, directing us, leading us. Man, that analogy just keeps getting better and better, more rich. (laughs) This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what it's all about. A death to sin and law means that sin, although is a part of my reality, I shall no longer be controlled by guilt and shame for I have been forgiven. And if I have been forgiven of so much sin, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, then that means that I am consistently a conduit of that same forgiveness to those around me. That the Holy Spirit has the ability in spite of our brokenness to reflect Jesus through us. And this is the joy of being a follower of Christ. That's why our sanctification can't just be something that's you know, derived from some prescriptive methodology. Sanctification flows out of following Jesus wherever he leads you. And he wants to meet you exactly in the way that he's made you because you guys, he loves you. He's crazy about you. He knows the challenges that we are confronted with today. And he says, be not afraid. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. The ruler of this world is coming, the devil himself. He says, but fear not for he has nothing in me, which means the safest place for you and I to be is in Christ. Thank God, Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. The invitation for you and I is to simply say yes to that completed work but it is a perpetual yes, a perpetual drinking, a perpetual surrender. This is the good death, and this is what it means to have life and to have it abundantly. We're not legalists, we're not libertines, we're actually both of those things. But what we really are in the eyes of the Father, if indeed you are in Christ, is liberated because you are a new creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel and its transformation in our lives. We pray right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into the truth of who you are. Lord Jesus, your word says that whoever confesses with their lips that you are Lord and believes in their heart that you are raised from the dead shall be saved. That you lived the life that we could not live. You who knew no sin became sin which means that you died the death that we deserve, that we are lawbreakers and we deserve judgment, but on the cross you took all of the judgment, all of the shame into yourself, where you cried out those horrifying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which reminds us that you were forsaken 
so that we could be found. That you tasted hell so that we could live in the light of eternity with an assurance that we have been purchased at a price and that price was your life and the fact is is that we could not add to that work nor can we take away from it but we can receive it and so we put our trust in you and to say that you are Lord is to recognize that I am not the ruler of my life you Jesus are we pray for revival in this city I pray it would begin right here in this community that there would be legitimate confession and repentance that we would continually change directions when we find that we are listening to the wrong voices help us to hear the still soft voice of your spirit holy spirit would you point us again and again to jesus for we want to be a church that lifts him up because your word said if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. May we experience your salvation today. So we declare our allegiance to you by confessing Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, church. Jesus is Lord. Amen.